Welcome to Sunday, South End City Church. Yeah, right? Hey, if we haven't met, I'm Jason, and I know that adding Sunday to the calendar means that for a number of people, this might be the first time that you're able to be a part of us, and so we're so happy to have you here. Um, the first word in how we understand ourselves is community, and what we mean by that is that we can belong together in a really deep and profound way, um, that it's part of being human together, and it's at the center of what God wants to do through a church, belonging together and for us, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we have to see the world entirely the same way. Um, in fact, we're really committed to creating a space for people that may have different beliefs than the ones that we hold at the center of our community. And we're committed to being a place where you, you may not be in a season of life or from a viewpoint where even a word like God or prayer makes sense. And, and yet we, we badly want you to know that you belong here just as much as somebody who finds great meaning and depth and connection in those kinds of words. Because uh, we think God is drawing us into, into a community together and that the things that draw us together are deeper and more profound than just agreeing on everything. So we're really, really glad that you're here, uh, wherever you're coming from, whatever your story, whatever brought you to this moment right now. Now, um, so this is our first uh, Sunday, uh, and we're also doing Tuesday night services. We've kind of, for the first time ever, split into two different gathering times. We know that for a bunch of people, Sunday is just the right time to be in church because it works for your life. And for a bunch of other people, uh, weeknights are really, really great. Maybe you're out of town on the weekends, or maybe you're working late on Saturday nights or something like that. And we want you to know that we want to make space for you too. But that also means that for the first time ever, we're like in two chunks. You know what I mean? Like, two times, two places. We did in-home dinners last week, and I heard all these stories. Like, at the end of the dinner, everybody was like, all right, well, I'll see you Sunday, Tuesday? Are we going to see each other ever again? You know, like, there is some anxiety about that. So I just want to point out, first of all, like, there'll be other times and places in the life of our church where we'll all be together. And secondly, I want to say this. If you're here on Sunday, but you've got friends and you love the community of the weeknight thing, check this out. You don't have to listen to the sermon twice. You could just hang out with us afterwards at Baker's on Tuesday, just like we've been doing on Wednesday nights at the Doubletree. So if you've been uh, at the Doubletree across the street, which was like our second of 17 locations, um, you know that like afterwards on Wednesday nights, we just go hang out in the hotel restaurant bar called Baker's and take over and, and give the wait staff a good time. And uh, we're going to keep doing that on Tuesday nights. And so if you want to make plans to still be part of that community experience, just like, I don't know, work late on Tuesday, go to the gym do some yard work, and then come to Baker's around like 8.15, 8.30 and join the community then, and we'd love to have you be part of that too. Uh, a couple other notes, just some announcement kind of stuff before we jump into uh, the content of what we're going to talk about today. One is that um, we're going to try something new today, which is we're going to take over all of downtown South Bend at the restaurants. Sound good? So um, yeah, we, 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 we've developed this pattern as a community, which is that when we gather in a circle like this and worship and pray and open the scriptures, that's not the only thing we do as a community. And so whether it was the brick and the bar opened up or it was the double tree and we went to Baker's, we want to keep creating that space for anybody who wants that. So we've got a, a few families and other people who've decided they're going to like stake out a restaurant in the city afterwards. And the easiest thing you could do is just afterwards linger, just ask. We're going to make it completely okay. You could just throw up a flare or call out in the lobby and say, who's going to a lunch somewhere? And you can tag along. But if you're looking for a more organized way to figure that out, if, um, if the sermon gets boring, just go to South Bend City Church Collective on Facebook, and you'll see that a few members of our community have already said where they're going to be for lunch afterwards. And those are like, come one, come all. We'd love to have you there. So that's happening uh, after the gathering today. Um, when you came in, you got uh, the program with the words and all that, but you also got a postcard. Check that out for a minute. Uh, this is going to be South Bend City Church's first Easter in just a couple of weeks, which is so special to us. 
And to make that even more special, we are gathering in a very special place in the city of South Bend. We're going to take the Tuesday night gathering and the Sunday morning gathering, combine them into one family gathering on Easter Sunday at Union Station right next to the South Bend Cubs. How cool is that, you guys? Yeah, if you haven't been in Union Station, it's this beautiful, like, 1920s-era cathedral. I mean, it's this huge vaulted ceiling. It's a work of art just to be in the space. You walk in, and you, your eyes just kind of immediately go up, and you take in this beautiful place that's been a part of South Bend's history. And uh, we're going to do Easter right in there. We're going to have kids' ministry going on at Union Station, our adult gathering. Services at 1030, just like normal. But from 915 to 1015, we're throwing an Easter party of sorts. We don't have all the details worked out, but we're going to make sure we got snacks and coffee, and we're just going to turn that space into like a giant walking brunch for all of us who want to stand around and hang out and love on each other before we turn our attention to the gathering that day. So uh, you've got the postcard. It's got directions if you don't know where Union Station is. It's got all the details there, and if you've got all that down, you can hand that to a friend who wants to know how they could be a part of it. Um, I think that's all I got for now, so we're going to jump into it. Uh, if you've been around our gatherings for a little while, you know that we've been talking for the last five weeks about what we think we're supposed to be. Uh, we don't actually have a mission statement as a church, which might just be a failure of organizational leadership on my part. I'm not sure. But what we, you can laugh at that. <laughs> I know some of you, you're actually concerned. You're like, I don't know about this Jason guy. Um, no, what we have is an identity statement. Uh, a pretty simple few words strung together that have a lot of depth and meaning to us about who we think we are supposed to become together. About, about what it means for us to grow into the future, into what God calls us to be as people and a community. That's what we've been talking through for the last few weeks. And so we started with uh, the word community. Like I mentioned, we really believe God is weaving us together into a community, and that's not just lip service. I remember our last Wednesday gathering at the Brick uh, a little over a month ago, we had an open floor time to just sort of name the things we're grateful for in the season we had experienced as a church. And what moved me the most was just hearing the number of people who spoke out and said in their own words one way or another that they feel like they belong here, that they feel loved here. And uh, I don't know what your experience of church or life is, but maybe there are very few spaces that you've walked into where you feel that. But we, we badly want to create that together, and we feel like we're slowly growing into a place where everybody can belong, so a community. And then it's not just any sort of community, but it's a community of grace and peace. And so we looked at those words, and they carry a lot of depth. They take us into sort of subterranean places in our hearts and in the world. Grace, like unexpected goodness and peace, that there be this beautiful harmony among us and between us and God and even in our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with the world around us, this wonderful, beautiful harmony that we believe we're made for and that when there isn't harmony, sometimes we have to get creative about restoring that harmony. Sometimes we even have to get disruptive naming the places where there isn't peace, because sometimes a status quo develops, that the world becomes invested in, that's something less than harmony. I, like, sometimes you have to throw over a few tables, you know? <laughs> if, if what we've embraced, what we've accepted is something less than the harmony that God wants for us in the world. So grace and peace. And then Ryan last week talked to us about our city. And this is really important to us. Like, we call ourselves South End City Church because where we are in the world isn't peripheral to our identity. It's not like we could do this anywhere. We feel like, no, we're doing this here in the city of South Bend for the city of South Bend. We're here um, not like as like saviors riding on white horses to save the city of South Bend, but as servants who are here to love and serve and give our lives for the city of South Bend. And today, I want to talk a little bit about the last word, which is world. 
And I want to um, just like acknowledge that like that's a big word, and it could be an easy word to say and a, a difficult word to mean. So I want to press into that a little bit. Any fans of the HBO TV show Silicon Valley? I know you're not sure if you're allowed to admit that in church, but the pastor's going there, so don't worry. I'm not recommending the TV show for families, okay? Um, but I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this show. So it's a fictionalized sort of comedy, dramedy uh, on HBO. And it features this little startup in Silicon Valley, this tech company that's just getting going. And they're kind of these Silicon Valley misfits that are finding their own way and dealing with all these hurdles. And I think part of the reason I identify with it is because this is a startup. And like every once in a while, I feel about as like um, naive as these young guys in Silicon Valley trying to create a tech startup. There's just challenges you don't anticipate. And sometimes you feel like there are bigger structures that you're up against and you're just trying to figure it out, you know? So I, I love the TV show, and I, I find all these moments where I identify with it. And there's a moment in one of the episodes that just like stood out to me so much. So there's a, a thing that I'm not even sure if it's real or not, but in the TV show it's called Tech Crunch Disrupt. And it's basically where a bunch of these brand new startup companies in Silicon Valley get on a stage in front of this huge room full of tech bloggers, and they're competing by presenting their new company ideas, their concepts, to this panel of judges, and somebody's going to win TechCrunch Disrupt and get a big check for funding and get a lot of praise and credibility in the community that's looking at these, all, all these new startup companies, right? Well, so you got all these, these sort of ragtag little companies that are just getting started, and they're trying to like cast this big vision for how their company is so consequential and so good at what they do, and they deserve the funding. And there's this, uh, this sort of mashed up montage with all these different companies, and they all say the exact same thing at the beginning of it, and there's just a little variability at the end. So I actually wrote these down because I don't know what any of these words mean at least the last part of them. But every single company, they stand up and they say, we're making the world a better place through like, like one company says, we're making the world a better place through Paxos algorithms for consensus protocols. Another company says, we're making the world a better place, place through software-defined data centers for cloud computing. Another guy says, we're making the world a better place through canonical data models to communicate between endpoints. And then another company says, we're making the world a better place through scalable, fault-tolerant, distributed databases with, with asset transactions. And I laugh at it every time. First of all, because like, it's kind of funny that these very wonky, nerdy sort of tech structures would be the thing that you would connect to this big transcendent vision, right? Um, but I also really relate to it because I feel like part of the joke is just that you have these little sort of scrappy startups who have the guts to stand up and say, we think that this thing that we're doing actually matters for the whole world. And more than ever, you and I like live at a time in human history where being aware of the whole world is a big part of what we experience. It's part of what we grapple with. Like, Think about the fact that like, no time in the history of humanity have we been so connected to the whole world, right? I mean, you can kind of go back in human history and there are long, long stretches of time where you're only connected to 20 or 30 or 200 in your tribe, right? Your clan, those within your little borders, right? And now we live in a moment where we're connected to everything, it seems. I mean, at any moment, you can get instant streaming video just piped into your life from anywhere in the world, from places and people who who have so many uh, cultural differences between themselves and you, and yet there we are, right there with them, learning from them, listening to them, seeing their burdens, hoping with them, feeling all of this stuff, right? And it's easy for us to assume it's always been that way, but of course it hasn't. It's easy for us to think that it's normal for somebody living in North America to maybe care about the burden of somebody living in the Middle East or Asia, but of course it's not. For most of human history, that's not normal. Normal to feel some empathy with somebody from a different tribe or skin color or religion or life experience. It's like, well, of course, that's what being a good human being means. But in fact, that's not the way it's been uh, to be a human for most of human history. 
And so here's a, here's a really nerdy way to make my point. Um, in your program there, you've got a graph. And this is from one of my favorite nerd tools on the internet. It's called Google's Ngram Viewer. So Google, uh, which like owns everything, um, they've been on this project now where they are scanning in and cataloging every single written word that they can get their hands on from the last 217 years, especially starting in the year 1800 till to now. So like, or obviously in the 1800s and 1900s, this wasn't digital content, but they have actual print copies of everything that's out there, right? So they've got journals and books and articles and letters, and they're scanning everything in and they're cataloging every single time that every word in the English language occurs. And then what you can do with this, which is really fascinating, is you can plug in a word or a phrase and you can find out how frequently did that word or phrase get used relative to the whole body of, of language, right? So, you know, like, you can find out if, if we're using a phrase a little bit in how we talk and write or if we're using a phrase a lot in how we talk and write. And if you plug the phrase change the world in, this is the graph that you get. And you can see like right there that this idea, change the world, was like not even on the radar for, for many, 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 many decades. And then you get a little rise uh, as the world wars start coming out, and all of a sudden world war is a thing, right? That the whole world could be in conflict, that the whole world could try to destroy one another. And then you see another little blip there right before the 80s. I don't know if that's like the peace movements. <laughs> Then you get um, this just massive skyrocket from 80 to 2017. Change the world, change the world, change the world. You can find books about how to change the world or the things that change the world or how this company changed the world or how this idea changed the world or how this person changed the world or how this movement changed the world. And we have this, this big idea of, of like getting out there and changing the world. And it's almost as if um, the more we get in, in contact with the world, the more we get connected to the world, the more we discover there's something about it that's not quite right. Like the more we get sort of a global picture of the whole world, it's like the more we see that whole thing, the more we feel like something needs healed here, something needs fixed here, something needs moved to a better place in the whole world. And so in our church identity statement, we call ourselves a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And I wanna ask questions like, is that, just, is that just like startup speak? Like, is that just something that sounds good on an identity statement? Does it make any sense for a few of us gathering in the Bendix Theater on the ugliest orange chairs you have ever seen to even think about like changing the world or having an impact on the world or being for the world in some meaningful way? Well, uh, to get us through that, I wanna look at um, the book of Acts one more time. So if you've been on the journey with us, you know that we've been um, in the book of Acts for quite a while and uh, this is, this is going uh, back to the very beginning because we've been working through this text and just asking ourselves, like, what is a church? Like, forget about, like, what your experience of church has been. Forget about the bad moments or the good moments. Forget about branding and buildings. Just asking ourselves one basic fundamental question again and again. What is a church? And so we've been moving through the book of Acts, and now I want to go back to the very first words that we looked at, like, in... It's like September or October, you guys, that we first looked at these words. But I want to return to them, see if they can kind of pull everything together for us and sort of send us out into the world with a view toward what we're about. So this is uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is the very beginning of the story of the church. And Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now let me just sort of stop right there and just like refresh ourselves and pull some of those last few months into this moment. All that Jesus began to do. All that Jesus began to do. Because as we read through the book of Acts, we discover that the church is nothing more and nothing less than the work of Jesus continuing, growing, expanding in the world. 
And this is like really, really important, right? Because churches can get confused and groups of people can get confused. And it's possible to have a whole bunch of people who get together and call themselves Christians, but who don't do anything that looks like Jesus in the world. Or who get obsessed with things that don't look like Jesus in the world. Who start acting in a way that doesn't look like Jesus in the world. And we're just reminding ourselves again and again that a church is nothing more or nothing less than the expansion of the work of Jesus in the world. So you and I, we're, we're practicing the way of Jesus. We're learning to pray like Jesus. Learning to sacrifice like Jesus. Learning to trust God like Jesus. Learning to move out into the world like Jesus. Now, this is also really important for me because I'm learning again and again and again that a whole bunch of us quickly lose sight of the fact that to be a Christian is to believe that God actually looks like Jesus. I was down in uh, Nashville a couple weeks ago, and um, I had preached at a church down there, and a guy that went to the church asked if we could talk afterwards and get some coffee. So we're, we're at this coffee shop, we're sitting outdoors there, and he starts talking with like great intensity about the struggle that he has, trying to figure out if he's supposed to be with this girl or not. So they, they fell in love, and they've been living life together for a while now, and um, and then her life has taken some turns and her faith has taken some turns that he didn't expect. And so they're just in this kind of confusing place trying to discern what the future is. And the more we talk, the more I realize this guy is terrified of getting it wrong. I mean, absolutely freaked out that he's not going to understand what God wants him to do. He's going to mishear it or misunderstand it and do the thing that God doesn't want him to do and then end up in a future that he can't redeem and God's going to be mad at him and the whole thing's going to fall apart and it's going to be awful. And I start trying to probe that. I'm like, where did you get that idea of God? That like God would have some very, very, very difficult to figure out plan for your life that he's hidden somewhere in the clouds and that if you can't read the tea leaves exactly right, he's going to penalize you for the rest of your life. Like, where does that idea come from? And I asked him, I said, like, do you see that in Jesus? And he kind of he hems and haws. He's like, well, no, not in Jesus. And, I, and this is a pastor's kid, by the way, and he knows his Bible through and through, but I, I was, we were getting to trust each other, so I looked at him and I said, wait, are you a Christian? Because, like, we got to be really clear on this. If you call yourself a Christian, one of the baseline things we are saying is that God is like Jesus, that God is revealed in Jesus, that the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus, that when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. And we, we probed it a little bit, and, you know, you kind of start peeling back the layers, and I just realized, this guy, man, like, through and through, he really believes that Jesus was God on a rare good day. You know? On a rare good day. That in a moment of uncommon grace, uh, in, in an eternal history of wrath and anger, that Jesus was God on a good day. And so we just pushed into that. And by the end of this conversation, we were praying together and he's weeping at the table. And I could just feel like some of the stuff was getting stripped away that was so broken down for him. I say all that because it's really important for us to remember as we move out into the world, if we actually think that what we are doing is for the world, then we start with this, that what we are doing is the expansion of Jesus' work and the conviction that God is just like Jesus. Let me, uh, let me keep going here. Uh, this is after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of about 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the dates or times the father has set by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now I just kind of want to camp out on these three uh, big words, power, witness, 
and to the ends of the earth or expansion. The first word here, uh, power. I think this is super important because I don't know about you, but I get really overwhelmed by the task sometimes. I remember I was in Lebanon uh, a little over a year ago, and I was there with a group called World Vision that you're going to hear more about a little bit later today. Um, but World Vision is uh, this very, very um, faithful nonprofit that moves out into places all over the world. Uh, world Vision U.S. funnels something like a billion dollars a year from American Christians to aid and relief needs all around the world. They're a really, really fantastic company. And there's so much like strength in what they do. I mean, again, billions of dollars and like decades of infrastructure and competency. Flying home from Lebanon, right next to me is a woman who works for the UN High Commission on Refugees. And we get to talking and she asks, what are you doing in Lebanon? And I say, I'm here with an NGO, a non-governmental organization that's working on the Syrian refugee crisis in the Bekaa Valley. And she says, well, who are you working with? And I, I don't know, UN person, like World Vision, are they crazy American Christians and the UN doesn't like them? I don't know what I'm going to hear. But I, I ask if she's heard of World Vision and she says, have I heard of World Vision? Of course. She said, they're one of the best. We love them. So that was an interesting data point. But, um, but I'm there in Lebanon um, and we go into the Bekaa Valley. The Bekaa Valley has roughly two million Syrian refugees living in it right now. This is just over the mountains between Syria and Lebanon and they live in what they call tented settlements. And we spent four days just going into their makeshift homes and hearing their stories. And I remember we walk into one home, and um, guys, their tented settlement was like nicer than my house. <laughs> Meaning like they cared for it so well, like they had such great um, pride and love for what they were doing for their families there. It's very clean, and you could tell that they sort of like souped it up because they knew some Westerners were walking in to hear their story. So we walk into basically this glorified tent with some tarps and some two-by-fours that hold up the, the, the roof, if you will. And they invite us to sit down on a rug, not unlike this one. And we sit around the side of it, and this Syrian father is there, and his girls are there, and his wife is there. And through a translator, he begins to tell the story of how they ended up in that place. And um, I mean, I've, I've heard about what's happening in Syria through the news, and it breaks my heart, but then to sit there and discover it firsthand was just very overwhelming. And I remember we asked um, the man through the translator, we said, when did you know it was time to leave? When did you decide to pack everything up and leave your house knowing you may never go back? When did you decide that walking with your kids across this border into a land where you know no one is, is a better, safer move? And he said, we knew it was time when the barrel bombs kept knocking off the levels of our apartment building and ours was about the next one to go. And we realized there was just no way to keep our kids safe. And I look at this father, he's a competent man. He loves his family and he clearly works very hard for them. And I just was struck by the fact that there are many places in the world where a parent's just completely helpless to keep his kids safe. And that's, um, that's kind of overwhelming, right? But you don't have to go to Lebanon to feel that way. I mean, how many of you remember that um, absolutely devastating image of that boy that washed up on a beach? I think it was a five-year-old boy who was face down on the sand. Who, his family's boat had capsized as they were trying to escape. The, just the devastating, overwhelming kind of tragedy that's happening there. Well, I say all this because if you start to open yourself up to the world, if you start to actually take in the enormity of some of these problems and tragedies in the world, you start to feel like, what do I have to offer, right? Like, what do I have to give in the world? I, there's me and there's Bashar al-Assad. I think he wins. It can feel that way, you know? But as Jesus tells his followers, I'm going to send you out into the world, he doesn't send them out ill-equipped. He says, I'm going to send power with you. I'm going to send you out into the world 
with power. This isn't going to be you on your own. Now, this isn't the kind of power that you can use at your own disposal or discretion, right? This isn't like, oh, you just get to be sweet. You know, what I mean? That's obviously not what's being talked about here. That's not what the church experienced. It seems more like they discovered that if they followed Jesus and prayed like Jesus and surrendered to God like Jesus, they'd be invited to like, like swim in a current, like, like a mighty river. And it may not always be that impressive or flashy. There may not be uh, waves across the top, but the fact is that when you get into that current, you discover it is a powerful movement that you are being swept up in that's carrying you along to the places that you're supposed to go to, that, that you're not intercepting these broken places on your own. And this is the only way I can make sense of the fact that for 2,000 years, the church has found itself in some of the most difficult and broken places in the world doing transformative things, not because the church had the guns or the money, because the church had the power because the church would sometimes find itself huddled up in dark secret rooms under persecution or against violence, and they would pray. And they would know they may not have much to offer, but they would discover that God would keep fulfilling his promise to show up in power when it was needed for the healing of the world. And sometimes it meant that they would suffer just the way that Jesus suffered, and he talks about in this. Sometimes it meant they would have to lay down their life somehow, but the power would come again and again and again. And if we're going to move out into the world with grace and peace. I, mean, I don't mean those words lightly. I mean the depth of grace, of a never-ending, abundant, surprising goodness and gift to the world. If we're going to move out into the world with peace, courageous enough to disrupt the places where it's not beautiful harmony, creative enough to think of better and more beautiful futures in the world where we don't see much beauty, then we better be asking God for power to move out into the world in his strength. Like, we should probably reckon with ourselves, do we really believe there's anything more than us? Any strength more than us, any goodness or kindness more than us that wants the world to be healed and drawn toward a more beautiful future. And I think the more that we lay hold of this conviction that God is like Jesus, that God likes to heal the way Jesus liked to heal, that God likes to restore the way Jesus liked to restore, that God is pouring out grace and peace the way they poured out through Jesus, the more we might believe that that power is with us as we move out into the world. And those things may seem like giants against us, but we're not alone. There's another word here, um, and I think these are really connected. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. Now, we talked about this uh, earlier when we first looked at this passage, but I just want to return to it again. Because, like, I don't know about you, but when I hear about witnessing and, like, Christianity, my skin crawls. I get, like, really uncomfortable. I've been witnessed to, and I'm a pastor. And sometimes I play dumb just to see how far it'll go. <laughs> Just because I'm curious about like how that interchange is going to go. You know, somebody walk up to you at a restaurant or on a sidewalk and they'll start witnessing to you. And I don't mean to impugn their motives or say they're coming from a bad place, but I know on the receiving end that can be really weird. <laughs> but the, the problem for me more than anything with that is that it loses sense of the original word for witness. I mean, what do we mean when we say a witness is like in the stand uh, for the court? Well, we mean that they've seen something, Right? I mean, that's the most basic definition for this word. A witness is somebody who has seen something. And he says, you will be my witnesses, which seems to say that like, we'll be the ones who go into the world and where we see decay or brokenness, where we see something that makes us say the world needs to be a better place than it is right now, when we see something that makes us say we need to change the world somehow, that what we have sort of with us, the resource that we have given to us, is what have we seen in Jesus and, and how have we seen Jesus in our midst right here? See, this is, by the way, how, um, 
how this little gathering in South Bend, Indiana of 100 people or something like that connects to billions of people all around the world, which is that when I go to Lebanon or when I go to Israel or when I go to the West Bank or when I go to Sri Lanka or see other places where there's great violence or brokenness, or by the way, when I see violence or brokenness in my neighborhood, in my back alley, like when I see these things, I remind myself these are not the only things I've seen. These are not the only things I've seen because I've seen uncommon love show up. I've seen people like for no like earthly incentive just decide to throw their weight and their love and their heart into creating a community like this i've seen people write ridiculous checks like make huge financial sacrifice so this community can exist i've seen people um, bring their their art and their beauty their craft so that this community could exist i've seen people open their doors of their homes so that this community could exist i've seen grace and peace again and again in this community and it looks like jesus so when i go places that don't feel like they have a lot of grace and peace i have to remind myself i've seen something else and uh, the more that we see it the more we're able to see it like you might find yourself across a table across a street or across the country or across the world from some place where everybody else looks and all they see is violence and carnage. All they see is darkness and death. But you and I, part of this witnessing is to be the ones who are able to see the little cracks of light that are breaking in everywhere where nobody else sees them, right? The, the, little, the little flickers, the little sparks that might be nurtured into a flame to warm the world, we're the ones, because we've seen it in Jesus and we've seen it with one another, we could go out the world and look for it and say we don't just see the darkness, we see the light. Have you ever had anybody look at you when all you see in yourself is darkness? Have you ever had anybody look at you and say, I see something else? When, when everybody else looks at you and sees a failure, have you had any, ever had somebody else look at you and say, no, I see, I see more than a failure in you. I see a hope, an aspiration. I see a flicker, a flame. I see a light breaking in. Have you ever had anybody look at you and everybody else sees somebody depraved or broken or dark or far from God and they say, I see a little bit of Jesus in you? Have you ever had that word spoken to you? If you haven't, stick around. We'll find a way to say it to you. We'll find a way to see it. Have you ever had that word spoken to you? I see Jesus in you. It'll change your day. It'll change your walk. It'll change your life. We're the witnesses. We're the ones who have seen. We're the ones who keep seeing. And we could do a rant right now, by the way, about like, about how like news feeds on negativity, about how the news will teach you to see a world that's darker and darker and darker, and it's just not the whole story, right? We could do a rant on like, evolutionary brain science and how your brain is actually more programmed to latch on to negative things because it keeps you safe from threats, right? But the problem is in a world with 24-7 cable news and Twitter and Facebook and everything else and viral headlines and fake news and all that stuff, like we just live in a world that is more and more trying to show us it's all dark out there, but we're the ones who say, no, it's not. We've seen light breaking in. Um, power and witness and then to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the part of the story that's almost laughable in the book of Acts if it hadn't happened. Because, like, this really is just a ragtag group of people in a part of the Roman Empire that nobody cares about that does not matter. Like, Israel, Jerusalem to the Roman Empire is not Manhattan to the United States. It might be a little closer to South Bend, dare I say. I don't mean to dog on South Bend, but, like, in the scope of global influence, people don't first think of South Bend, Indiana, right? <laughs> I mean, we've got Notre Dame that helps. I get that. But, like... It's not the way that we think about influence and power and effect in the world. And yet there Jesus is in this out-of-way part of the empire looking at his friends and saying, power will come upon you that God will give. And you will go out into the world and tell the world what you have seen. And you will go to the very ends of the earth. 
So we at Southland City Church believe that we're being called in, in some way unique to us to go to the ends of the earth, to go to the world somehow. Now, we're going to find our own way to do that, a way that's unique to how we understand what it looks like to be like Jesus in the world. I mean, sometimes, like, when white American Christians go to the ends of the earth, it's so they can, like, show how they've got everything figured out, <laughs> just to be honest about that. Sometimes when American Christians go to the ends of the earth, it's to plant a flag, and it feels a little too colonial, a little too imperialistic, if you know what I mean. But there is a way of going out into the world, whether you're at your home watching the news or you're getting on an airplane to go to another continent. There's a way of going out into the world, empowered to be a witness to look like Jesus. And that's what we intend to do as a community. We'll find our way toward those places in the world that God is calling us to. Um, this is one of those places in this identity statement for us that is just, it's like a seed in the earth right now. You know what I mean? Just like a little seed that you plant in the earth. But Jesus has all these beautiful metaphors about the kingdom that like you put a little seed in the earth and what do you get a few years later? You get this huge tree that provides shelter and care for the, the world around it, right? So this is like a little seed that's in the earth for us right now. We don't have like massive plans to take 20 trips to India next year or anything like that. We don't have a, a thorough like on the ground strategy for international engagement. But we do have this deep sense that we need to start engaging some burdens for the world like right now. Sometimes that'll be when the world comes to us like if refugees show up in the city of South Bend and we decide we need to find a way to welcome them and love them in the, in the name of Jesus, uh, sometimes it'll be sending money to great organizations like World Vision, uh, throwing our energy into something like that. And we have a chance for something like that right now. So if Morgan is here, where's Morgan at? Yeah, Morgan, come on down here. We've got one of those opportunities right now. I wanna introduce you guys to Morgan Murdoch and let her tell us more about this. This is uh, in relation with World Vision, which I already mentioned to you. It's a Christian organization that does incredible work around the world. They don't just funnel money, though. They've got on-the-ground operations like all over the world um, where they're caring for the most urgent needs for people. Uh, one thing, I'll just tell you, one thing I love about World Vision is they don't see water as like a means to get you to convert. That's actually a really big deal, uh, I think, to a lot of people in our community. Like, they, they give the water in the name of Jesus, but it's not like a sales job to get your knee down for it. It's just, no, no, I'm going to love you with the water and let you know we do this because we obey Jesus and then let you take it from there. But um, anyway, uh, Morgan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the 6K? Um, yeah, so like you said, my name is Morgan. Um, on May 6th, we're having a global 6K. Um, it's a 6K because um, six kilometers is the average amount a child will walk to get water for their family. Um, all around the world. A lot of what world, I've interned for World Vision, I've run races for World Vision, slightly obsessed with World Vision. So I won't go on a rant for you, but if you have any questions in general about the organization, I can answer those and vouch for them. Um, just seeing their work behind the scenes is amazing and their integrity and um, just generosity, each individual staff person. Um, anyway, on May 6th, I'm, we're hosting a 6K and it's walk, run, rollerblade, whatever you want to do. Um, it's going to be mostly just like a reflection event um, where we're focusing on this is how far a child has to walk just to provide water for their family. Uh, because they have to do that, they can't go to school. Um, the water isn't even clean, so they don't have good hygiene. And it really, um, I could give you lots of stats on how that affects families around the world. Um, so what this 6K is going to do is raise funds uh, for those children and communities. Um, so it's $50 uh, to register, and what that does is provide water for that child um, and people in their community for a lifetime. 
Um, so a lot of people want to know, is all of my money going towards that? The answer is yes, because there's donors that have taken off those extra fees. So you know your $50 is going for this kid and their family. Um, so when you register, you are actually going to get your t-shirt in the mail. Um, you get this bib that actually has a child on it. So if you want to, you can pray about sponsoring that child. Um, and the money doesn't go right to the kids, so they're not like the special kid in the community. Hmm. Um, but it actually sponsors all, all of the kids and the families there. And you have the opportunity to interact with that child, write them letters, and do special things for them. But that's why I love World Vision is because yeah. it's not just this one kid that gets helped by you. It's the whole community. Um, yeah. Is there anything else? I, I think that's it. So Morgan that? has got a table. If you go out the center doors and hang a right, you can ask questions. You can even sign up there. She's got her computer ready. Or you can get more information, take it home and think about it. And it's also on the South Bend City Church Facebook Collective. Yeah. If you want to follow the details there, right? Yeah. Awesome. Thank yeah. you, Morgan. Thank you so much. You guys want to thank Morgan? Yeah. Uh, to Morgan's point, another distinctive of World Vision, which is a philosophy thing, is um, some, some uh, nonprofits that sort of Christians do sponsorship with, they, they kind of will. If there's a village with 100 kids and they get sponsorships for 20, 20 of the kids go to school and 80 don't. And I, I'm not so much knocking that as I'm saying we identify more with the philosophy that wants to tackle systemic issues. And so they'll take the funding they have and come to a village and figure out what can they do systemically for every kid in the village. That's uh, just one little part of World Vision's unique approach that we really affirm. Um, and you'll be hearing more about World Vision, uh, I'm sure, in the months ahead as we figure out more what things like international partnerships look like. That's just one group that we really trust and love and believe in and want to help. Uh, you may have heard, by the way, we have the belly burst coming up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, so here's this, this is so cool. You got the belly burst, which is for people like me who don't run. And then you got a 6K, although Morgan pointed out you could walk, you could meditate, you could rollerblade too, but we do have a couple of those things going on. If you're wondering about the belly burst, uh, South Bend City Church Collective as well, you'll see more there. Um, remember earlier when I said that I identify with the Silicon Valley guys because they're the kind of like coolest startup guys who don't entirely know what they're doing? Well, see, part of that is I forgot to do the offering at the beginning of service. So um, are you guys still cool if we do that now? We don't want to put any pressure on you guys, but if you'd like to make an offering, you can always do that online. Uh, a number of our uh, community are giving, not just regular giving, but giving to furnish the Studebaker, which is our future home that we're getting ready to move into, and you can do that online or do that now as well. Seriously, no pressure, but just if you'd like to have a chance to give, we want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And then, um, and let me sort of uh, just wrap with these words before uh, the band comes back up to lead us a little more. Um, so the Silicon Valley guys, you know, they have like all this technology, all of these like wonky, nerdy tools. They have their Stanford degrees and their intelligence and they have their equipment. And I actually think that intelligence and equipment and technology is really good and important for the flourishing of the world. And if you have some specialty trade, whether it's accounting or what you do with a guitar or like whatever you do, like those things really matter in the world. But when I watch that, I think to myself, like, the question is, like, at what level do you want to access what's broken with the world, and what do you think that you have to give, right? Like, at what level do you want to try to access what's broken in the world? When you open the hood on the world, and you look underneath, and you try to figure out how you're going to access what's wrong with the world, and what do you have to give, that's the question, right? Now, um, when I was, like, 16 years old or something like that, I had this very strong sense that this future was in front of me to be a part of serving the church somehow. Um, it's kind of hard to describe an interior experience like that that you have, you know, like some people use words like they heard from God. That's not quite the language I would use, but I just had this deep sense that 
came into my life that this would be a part of my future serving the church. And you guys, I almost immediately hated that idea. <laughs> Can I be honest with you? Like, it did not get me excited. I mean, like, you're 16, you're 17 years old, you look out on the world and you see all of this stuff going on and you think, I want to be a part of making the world a better place, right? <laughs> making the world a better place through something. Like, what do we have to give? What are you going to put your hands to? What work are you going to do? What are you going to be a part of if you want to make the world a better place because you look around and you're not sure it's quite what it ought to be? And so I, I got like kind of schizophrenic and I go to school and I try a little bit of this and a little bit of that, trying to figure out what I'm good at and what I have to help. And now here I am like years later where I've realized I really believe in my bones that deeper than whatever trade you have, whatever skill set you have, whatever good tools that you have, whatever education you have, like deeper than any particularity for you or for me, the thing that we have to give to the world, the access point that we have on the world is where the world is begging for grace and peace. Where the world is begging to know that God has abundant goodness for the world, that God has more kindness for the world, that God is not the angry God that one day had a good day in Jesus, but that God's disposition to the world has always been that of a loving Father, that God's first words to the world are, it is good, like delighting in the world. And then when God speaks to Israel and gives them the law, the first words of the law are not prohibitions. The first words of the law are, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the Father who loves you and rescued you. This has always been God's disposition. And the world's like aching to know that there is grace for the world, abundant, surprising goodness for the world. And you and I are here gathered as a church stoking the fires of grace right here, right now, right? That we would carry that heat and that light into the world. And I am deeply convicted and convinced that the world is begging for peace, like aching, yearning for peace, just desperate for a beautiful harmony in how we coexist with one another. That a bunch of us are walking around in the world for, um, aching for a harmony with God that we could perceive, that there would be peace there, or aching for a harmony with our own journey, our own history, our own fears, our own wounds that we're unreconciled with, just aching for peace. And I'm absolutely convinced that what we're doing right now is we're stoking the fires that we would carry a little heat and light into the world, that we would carry some peace into the world. And whether it's across the street or around the globe, we would have grace and peace to offer. This is how we make the world a better place. One of the ways that we stoke those fires of grace and peace for our city and the world is we, we pray together, we sing together. So uh, the last thing we'll do in this sort of gathered setting before we go is we'll pray and sing together a little more. Uh, Dan and the crew are going to lead us. If you're new here, uh, sometimes we do something that's sometimes called like a prayers of the people. And this is a way of just sort of praying together. And some of the words have been prepared ahead of time. This isn't meant to be formal or rigid. It's just meant to sort of create a, a path that we could walk on together in our prayers so that we could put these words on our lips, open our hearts together, and stoke those fires of grace and peace. You can stay on your feet if you're able. We're almost out of here. Um, I'll say this. I know in my mind, I keep just looking forward to the Studebaker, which will be our permanent home, and it'll be beautiful and historic. And admittedly, it's, it's easy for me to feel like the Century Center is like, this'll do. But I don't know about I love this, guys. I love this. I love this room. Uh, it's a lot better with you in it, for the record, than it was when we were scouting it on our own. So this is really beautiful. Um, Make plans to get lunch with people. If you've been here more than once, you know that you are a greeter. Yeah. And also, if you've been here more than once, you know that we often end our gatherings with this simple benediction spoken to one to another. So if you've been here and you know it, um, with a lot of gusto, you can respond. But may grace and peace be with you. Amen. See you soon, friends.